there was there was one day uh, very early in my time in Congress when I was working on an amendment to do uh, to bring additional funding to the reconnect program. And some of the Republican members were lining up to sign a discharge petition, um, which and so they were all lined up on the floor waiting their turn to sign a discharge petition. And so I, it was like, wonderful. I just went over to them one by one. Are you from, and I was new. So, you know, I tried to study people's faces. I don't know everybody. And I said, are you from a rural community? Oh, actually I got a bill for you. And of course they're just stuck because they're in line waiting to sign the discharge petition. And so I just went down the line and it was great. Welcome to article one a show about lawmakers, legislating, and the politics that make Congress work. I'm your host, Molly Hooper, longtime Capitol Hill reporter, sharing with you my one-on-one conversations with Democrats and Republicans who are in the Senate, House, on the trail, and behind the scenes. This is a wide-ranging interview. We discuss whether Spanberger supports Nancy Pelosi for another term as Speaker, her stance on violence that has erupted amongst recent protests, how her career in the CIA helps her navigate legislative landmines, and the likelihood of another COVID relief package making it to the president's desk before Election Day. Keep in mind, we spoke in mid-September, before the White House re-engaged with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi on a COVID relief deal. As of this recording, Secretary of the Treasury and Pelosi are still talking but a deal looks less likely to come together before November 3rd. Now, on to our interview, where we start off the conversation discussing statistics listed atop Spanberger's official congressional website. You'll find the link in the story notes. And the work her office has done to help constituents of Virginia's 7th District. One hundred and ten thousand six hundred and twenty-seven responses to emails and letters. Nine hundred and ninety-nine cases closed, and I see. And I'm just really impressed. Tell me about this. Tell me about what you do for your district. Number one, I kind of want to know about those statistics. And number two, who's Christy Black and Sean? (laughs) Oh my gosh, they're like the most popular people in your office, and with good reason, it seems like. Are you, are you reading what we lovingly refer to as the uh, the Christian Sean fan page? Expect. Oh my gosh! Do you know I haven't received my EIP yet, and I want to call Sean Meredith because I think he's the guy that's going to get it done. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's funny actually spending any amount of time looking on that page because it's exactly that. It's I called, and then minutes later, Sean like waved a magic wand. It's 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 pretty charming. I mean, who um, are you those know, magical fairies you have? Because I need one for this whole thing. You know, my blog and my podcast. I need a Sean Meredith to like do technology. Uh, yes. Well, I recommend it. But you, uh, you know, our, our Sean Meredith, I think, is busy with uh, social security and a whole host of other things. Uh, you know, it, it's it's. I think it boils down to the fact that in our district, you know, when I was elected, my priority has been to serve the people of my district, and we've been able to attract an incredible team of workers. Uh, and of, of people who are focused on the idea of serving people. Uh, we see it certainly, as you mentioned, with Sean and Christy and our other constituent services uh, representatives who are the ones who are out in the community. When I'm on Capitol Hill, they're the ones representing me. They're the ones uh, 
you know, being the, the face of the office when I can't be there, they're the ones holding people's hands through really tough times. You know, we've heard from some constituents who've been trying for years to get their veterans benefits or years to get their social security payments. And most of the time when you're in need of that assistance, it's because there's a major complicating factor in your life. Right. Uh, a, you know, disability, an illness, a death of someone who's benefits you're, you're, you know, you're, you're trying to process through. And so having someone who's really focused on serving the community, I think, helps not just achieve the goal uh, that's laid out on that fan page, but also make sure that the experience is, is really a good one. Right. And, and I, I, I love there's one of them that said one of the testimonials said, and Sean just told me not to call Social Security. And I didn't. <laughs> he, said, he said, don't do it. And like two days later, I got my benefits. <laughs> I, I was in hysterics, but I was also really, you know, I don't think people out the, the people, the folks who are watching all the shows, they don't realize what members of Congress do. And yeah. the reason why you, you are important and you're representing, you know, taxpayers in the Capitol. It's not just Supreme Court nominees, while that's important, or um, what the president said yesterday or today or whatever it is. It's like, it's these things that matter. And so that's why I wanted to ask, you know, you know how, how, how do you get this all done? And how has it been affected or impacted because of COVID? Well, so we have 10 counties in total. Um, and our constituent service teams used to do open office hours where they would go to public libraries, they would be out in a public space, because across our 10 counties, if you live, you, you mentioned you love Culpeper, if you live in Culpeper, it's not the fastest thing to get to our Spotsylvania office, or certainly not our Henrico office. And so being out in the community doing uh, public office hours, where people can just walk in, you know, out of curiosity, I've got this issue, can you help me? Because we found that even making the phone call, calling your representative's office, a for some people is a is a big step to take and so a lot of that to answer your question a lot of that's changed under covid because with covid we haven't been able to do the same sort of things i love doing town halls in person you know somebody asks a question into the microphone i i learn a lot from the question they ask not just the words they ask but also the way they ask it right um and so it's it's really been um, a challenge in the time of covid to not be able to have the same engagement but our team, you know, among the things that we've done is we've, we've been really present on social media. We've been present in the community when, you know, it was appropriate for the pandemic, making sure people know we did outreach to, uh, you know, community organizations, making sure that they know that we can assist. You know, if it's an organization that deals a lot with veterans, make sure they know that our office can on just to make sure people know that that's an option. And so frequently, you know, I was, um, uh, up in Orange County over the weekend or just last week. Is that Montpelier? Very, yes, I wasn't at Montpelier, but I was, I was in Orange County. I, we got to love James Madison. <laughs> <laughs> Article and, one. There we go. See, oh, you know the district so well. So we were, we were in Orange and, um, uh, in between stops had, had stopped at a great, uh, restaurant. We're eating outside, socially distant. You know, and a gentleman approached us and said that he's been having trouble with a, a particular issue and he's, someone told him that he could reach out to our office. And, you know, it's like so many people, he expressed such a hesitance right. to bring it to us. And, and, you know, luckily I had the opportunity. I was there to say, no, sir, like, this is exactly what we can help with. And it's a, it's a you know, pretty personal matter and a really difficult challenge that his family's facing. 
and the idea that someone could help them through it, you know, I, I, it's, it's such an honor to be able to help with that. And, um, and so it's been, um, it really, I think one of the most exciting pieces of the job is recognizing that there's these buckets. There's the constituent service side where you can be someone's helping hand when they need it most. Mm -hmm. um, there's the legislative side. Occasionally, you know, out of the constituent services, we actually write legislation. And we had that was the case. We had a, a gentleman in the district who's a veteran, a firefighter, uh, was in the Air Force as a military firefighter, has had significant exposures in his service in the Middle East, um, has a really uh, specific type of cancer that's most prevalent among firefighters, and, and really facing significant health challenges. Right. And we were first, and you know, he, he's, he's talked about this very openly, so I'm not sharing his personal information, um, but you know, we initially started working with him, trying to help him with the VA. Right. And then we realized the, the problem isn't his individual case got stuck somewhere or he needs individual advocacy. The problem is there's this hole where people like him right. cannot get service-connected disability for the type of injury that he has oh because the God. VA doesn't recognize it. So we drafted legislation because presumably just because we you know, were lucky enough to meet this incredible veteran who has you know, risked a lot and now experiencing a lot because of his service, there are others out there like him. And so we actually wrote legislation and introduced it at the very beginning of this year that would close that, that hole um, and ensure that military firefighters with certain types of exposures, as is commonly recognized for civilian firefighters, right. uh, with certain types of exposures, certain types of cancers, that would be clearly recognized as a service-connected injury. Oh my gosh, and you know, it's so interesting, because like, I'm thinking about it, I'm like, firefighter, and then I think, oh, lead paint, even lead paint in somebody's house. And, and you're all the chemicals, the PFAS, right. and then for those who, those who served overseas, yes. there's the additional issue of burn pits, right? When we were first in the Middle East, right. there's the issue of burn pits, and who, who among you know, military members are working the burn pits, but of course the firefighters right. so, so frequently. So you must um, find that your other, your colleagues have these kind of issues as well. Is it something where you're like, hey, you're at the Problem Solvers Caucus. And I notice <laughs> your transparency schedule, which I love. I wish oh, all you. members would have to do that. I love it. I'm like, oh, Problem Solvers Caucus again. Problem Solvers Caucus. <laughs> problem Solvers. Problem Solvers. Okay, problem Solvers. Problem, oh, okay. Well, so I'm, I'm just using that as a, you know. Perhaps at the well, I think I drive my scheduler crazy because I always tack things on. I'm like, make sure that ends up on the transparency schedule. No, it is. I'm wondering how many people, number one, I want to know how many people look at it and never bring it up. But number two, when you're, say, at the Problem Solvers Caucus or on the phone saying, hey, we have this issue. Have any of you guys heard of this in your district? Do any of your military firefighters, are they dealing with this kind of issue? Is that something where the more you get to know members across the aisle and within your own party, it, it sort of helps out? It is, it is. And you know, if you look at uh, like Dr. Raul Ruiz, who's a, a, another member on the Democratic side of the aisle, he's doing a lot of work uh, in, in the burn pit space, right? Which is a, a major overlap um, with, and, and so, you know, even just knowing what is the interest area or my co-lead on the bill that I'm mentioning is Congressman Don Bacon, who himself is an Air Force I veteran. I just interviewed Don Bacon. <laughs> he's delightful. Yeah, he's great. And so, and so, I mean, I went to him as a co-sponsor, one, because he's done work uh, related to firefighters and protecting firefighters, but also as an Air Force veteran, I thought he was a particularly great um, co-lead. And so he and I have worked together and we continue to build out the, the list of 
colleagues there. You know, we were a little bit more optimistic that it would potentially at the time frame it could move forward before COVID struck. Right. Um, but you know, it's these things that keep you motivated for next Congress, like we'll push it harder. And this is, you know, one of the reasons why I want to come back because I have these bills that you know mean something, not just from a legislative perspective, but like real people would be impacted and we got to keep pushing them. Well, and what I, okay. So on that note, nice transition, great transition, broadband, rural broadband. Tell, tell me about your effort on this because you were sort of ahead of it, ahead of the issue. Yeah. And I say that ahead of it pre-COVID, essentially, because once COVID hit, that one of my first questions was what's going to happen to everybody who needs to work, who happens to live in a rural district, who doesn't, who don't, they don't have broadband, they don't have connection to the internet, but you were ahead of that. Tell me what that has meant to your district. And number one, how did you even, how did you even get that with the USDA, that $28 million? So I have been focused on broadband connectivity since I got to Congress. Well, and frankly, before I got to Congress, because it's a need in my district. Um, I represent a district which that's a mix. Rural, right? which, exactly. It's a mix of suburban. We wrap around the Richmond suburbs or we wrap around Richmond City. So it's suburban around Richmond City. And then the rest of it is predominantly rural. And some of our rural communities have really limited access to broadband connectivity. You know, the eastern portion of the county, because it bumps up against the suburbs in Goochland County, one of our counties, has good connectivity, whereas the western side, it doesn't. Right. And the, for quite some time, this has been a real impact within the district that I represent because it, it impacts businesses that they can attract to the area. Right. It impacts whether or not young people ever want to move back home. Uh, it impacts the education of kids in schools. And, you know, there's a lot that's been written about the homework gap, particularly in counties where there's a mix of access when schools are assigning homework and you've got some kids going home and they have broadband connectivity and some kids don't, right. that experience is, is, a, is a really distinct one. Um, and of course, there's access issues even in places where there is broadband accessibility, but we're talking about where you actually can't, no matter how much you want to spend, you can't get internet at your house, right. which is a very real thing. And what we've seen in rural communities is people adapt. You've got, you know, innovative folks who adapt. They take the kids to McDonald's on the weekend and check their work email. Kids stay after school at the library. Right. But in COVID, all of a sudden, every way that they had adapted suddenly stopped being an option. Right. And, and so it became very, very clear um, in the rural communities just how pervasive and significant the challenge is, particularly when you, have, um, when you have school districts that are trying to make decisions about how to deliver learning to kids and, you know, depending upon what percentage of their student body, literally, you can send them home with a computer, you can send them home with whatever, but they can't get internet at home. Exactly. It's, like, it's like, okay, well, how am I going to connect to do my homework? Exactly. So you have different school districts that are making significantly different decisions because of the access issues. Right. Um, you've got a workforce that they're, you know, some of our larger employers said, go home, take your laptops, we'll see you in a couple months. But depending upon where you live, that may not be an option. Right. And so the, the pandemic really made it clear just how significant the problem was in rural communities. But notably, what I found very interesting is suburban communities are suddenly so aware of how much they consume internet. Right. And so I used, I used to, in my town halls, I would mention broadband in my suburban communities where it's really not an issue, exactly. but I would mention it just because one of the, I mean, I work so hard on it. I spend so much time. I may as well mention it. Right. Um, but I do think that there's a really interesting kind of element of making sure that people know literally two miles down the road, you can't 
hook up internet to your house. Right. And that's, um, I noticed that like there was recently in, in Culpepper, I'm not sure if it was Culpepper, but uh, there's a new grant that was going to be announced to, I'm not sure if this is your district or if it's, if it's Wexton's district, but, but so somebody was coming in and saying, okay, I, we want to hook up the, the community. We can do this, but are you going to do, we can do sort of, uh, short term, yeah. <laughs> medium term, or long term, where we actually send wires, where we actually basically dig wires to people's houses. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of different ways to implement it. And I'm wondering, how has it been implemented in your district? Or how have you noticed it implemented? So in our, in our district, um, we have, and you mentioned a, a, a grant dollars, we had a, uh, in yeah, our call, district. Yeah, I got like technical knowledge. I like, like it. <laughs> How's that working with the wires? Yeah. There's lots going on. Well, we've got, um, so the, the USDA Reconnect program right. is a federal grant program where communities can apply for those dollars. And so a portion of the district that I represent, two of our counties um, and then neighboring counties in the fifth district with their rural electric co-op, in fact, applied for this large grant. And so it's a, this a $28 million grant uh, or a $20 million program within Central Virginia impacting uh, two of the communities that I represent or two of the counties. Right. But the, the challenge with the ReConnect program, it is a great program. And last year, um, I tried to get money increased to it. In the end, we were in sort of save mode when the Senate zeroed out in, in appropriations. And so we actually just protected uh, prior year's funding. Right. Um, it's a great program, but it does require that communities be able to organize. It does require oftentimes like an outside entity trying to create that, that partnership to move forward. And that's really just not available everywhere. Right. So that, that's one option that exists and continue to exist. Although Reconnect program, there is not enough money for the amount of communities that apply. Then there's another program called the E-Rate program, which allows for hotspots to go home, uh, you know, hotspots for students and for communities. Mm -hmm. Now, there's some limitations on the E-Rate program because it's meant to be for learning. So it's supposed to be at schools and at, at public libraries. But the challenge with the E-Rate program and the hotspots is it goes off the Wi-Fi network. So depending upon where you live, if you don't have cell service, uh, you also then you can't use your, your hotspot. Um, okay. And it, also a great program, but a bit of a Band-Aid and certainly not a long-term fix and you can't you know you just can't have kids uh, on a, a class video chat for the entirety of the day right. on a hotspot that even if they can use it that's not a reliable source you know I was speaking with a woman who's a professor at a community college Germana Community College in the northern portion of our district uh -huh. and she was saying that in the spring in particular she had students who had done so well all throughout the time that she had known them and then suddenly stopped being responsive, not returning, not re returning assignments. And so she reached out to a variety of different students and it turned out it was all an internet ex issue. Some of them were able to drive to the parking lot, even when the school was closed, you know, and do their homework and submit things online, but some of them didn't have that option. So she said that she actually delivered their final exam to a couple of her students in oral form over the phone Talking about, okay, well, tell me about your thesis of what you read and, you know, okay, like, and, and she walked me through it. And I thought, you know, the heart of this teacher and this educator to recognize that her student was falling behind and to try and figure out why and then to realize it's an, actually an issue of technology right. and then to be so adaptive, you know, it's, it's, 
it's a beautiful example of community, but it's also a real clear indicator of the challenges that we have. Um, and certainly, now that we are continuing to be kind of in the throes of COVID, just over 200,000 people die, have died so far. Infection rates are not in a good place, uh, particularly in you know varying rates in different states. Uh, I have three children. They are all learning virtually for at least the first nine weeks of school. So what comes next? And we think about how the major impact all of this has had on our economy, broadband connectivity for our rural communities and for our country, not just the rural communities, is really important as we try to rebuild. Like what comes next? Where do we make investments? Right. And even I think, you know, we've really changed to some degree the way that people are working. Like it's, it's, it's look at us. We're having this conversation exactly. over Wi-Fi. Uh, under under previous circumstances, like we probably would have been sitting in a studio together, but this is now commonly acceptable, even with my terrible back background. And so, <laughs> that's okay. I'm going to use the audio, mostly the audio. Perfect. Okay. Audio. Yeah, uh, but I do like the picture of the family. <laughs> and and so you know, but but thinking that through, some of the larger employers who have already said to their employees, "You're not coming back for a year," right? Right. I mean, and that exists. What if those people want to move to my beautiful district, want to move to Culpeper County, want to move to Nottaway County, right? But you know what? If, if their job requires that they be online, for some of the counties, it's okay, yeah, put me in a place where I have really good internet access. And that's a limiting factor. And so, you know, even with my own family, when we decided my husband and I wanted to move back home to Virginia, he works from home and he has while he was, um, you know, while I, I was, we were moving with my job with CIA. And so literally because we're both from one of the suburban communities we moved back home to our home county right. um and we flipped on the internet or got it installed got our little router box and he was back to work right but if we had been from a neighboring county also in my district we probably would have moved to the suburban county and you know driven out on the weekends to see family exactly. and you just think about what that means for the economic impact the, the growth the tax base kids in schools all of it right um and, and and I have just spoken to so many folks in our communities who recognize that this is a real divide. Well, what about what about members of Congress? Because there are so many members who represent rural districts. And, and in addition to what you got the Senate, and I mean, a bunch of those guys represent states that are totally rural. I mean, your Montana, your South Dakota. I mean, where's John Thune? <laughs> Where, he's on the Commerce Committee. Come on, um, you know. Well, have, Dusty Johnson from South Dakota has been great on this issue. Well, <laughs> We've worked a lot. We've worked a lot. Um, you know, it's it's funny. It, it is a, such a common um, issue that brings people together. Right. There was there was one day uh, very early in my time in Congress when I was working on an amendment to do uh, to bring additional funding uh -huh. to the Reconnect program, and some of the Republican members were lining up to sign a discharge petition, um, which and so they were all lined up on the floor. Uh -huh. waiting their turn to sign a discharge petition. And so I, it was like, wonderful. I just went over to them one by one. Are you from, a, and I was new. So, you know, I tried to study people's faces. I don't know everybody. And I said, are you from a rural community? Oh, well, actually I got a bill for you. And of course they're just stuck because they're in line waiting That's to right. sign the discharge petition. And so I just went down the line and it was great. But, but so much when I say, you know, are you from a more rural community? This is about broadband. Instantly you have people who were engaged because it really is an investment in our community, but an investment in our country. And I think right. we've reached a place where the divide between 
the communities that have broadband connectivity and those that don't, I mean, the divide is much like what we saw at the turn of the last century right. when there was people without electricity made do, but how do you really, as a united country, move forward in your economy, you know, if the guys down the road don't have electricity in their house, yeah, right? But like two miles away, they're, they have lights on, lights are on. Yeah. Um, and on that note, where is there money included in the Problem Solvers Caucus COVID package that would increase broadband connectivity or anything, any, any kind of language like that? Just because it is such an issue for students, especially kids yeah. who can't get back to school and, you know, workers, of course, who are trying to work from home. But really, for students, I think that's the one thing that I've heard from various members of Congress that their big concern is. You know? Yeah. So in prior um, prior COVID-related relief packages, we had funding for schools also included in that would be support for broadband connectivity. Um, the problem solvers proposal that we put forward has additional money for schools and for daycare, um, some of which could be put towards that type of infrastructure. But the okay. real um, investment in broadband connectivity is, comes in the form of a larger bill that we introduced this summer. It, it didn't get much attention primarily because of the ongoing pandemic. Right. Called the um, uh, Affordable Accessible Internet for All Act. Okay. And uh, Congressman Clyburn is the lead on that. And we introduced it as part of the Rural Broadband Task Force. Okay. I'm a member of that task force. Congressman Clyburn or Whip Clyburn leads that task force. And so we introduced that as a task force effort. Um, and then we rolled that bill into HR2, which was our infrastructure package that we passed over the summer. Okay. Again, you know, with it, with COVID, everything was a little bit, uh, it, it didn't get the same sort of discussion, I think, in the news that it would have either uh, otherwise. Right. Um, the important thing here, it, it passed in the House. We know it doesn't have a future in the Senate at this moment. What what steps have you taken and what steps have, you know, the members who are involved in this taken to actually see that this does make it to the president's desk? Because this doesn't seem like something that's a lightning rod issue. Yeah. So, so what is it going to take to get that to become law? So I think the urgency of where we are right now, the major priority is going to continue right. to be just a basic COVID-19 relief package focused on unemployment, right. focused on PPP, right. you know, support in still in what is an ongoing emergency circumstance for so many people, um, stabilizing that. Um, and so, you know, PPP, um, unemployment, support to state and local, support to schools, direct payments to individuals to ensure that we're staving off a, a housing crisis and people right. can put food on the table, and make ends meet. And, and then I think once we get the virus on a pathway to being under control, which comes with massive testive and testing and massive contact tracing, then we are on that path to we say, no, where can we make investments that help us pull out of this? And I, I think, you know, I'll keep talking about broadband connectivity, I'll keep talking about this issue, um, but, I, but I do think that that's gonna be the point in time where we make a, a real pitch to the American people, where we make a real pitch to our colleagues, Democrats and Republicans, saying this is an element of the larger investments that we need to make in our communities. Um, and, and we need to view it as an investment. We need to understand what it can get us. We need to understand it will benefit our rural and suburban and urban communities alike. And so looking at it as an investment is, is something that I, I, I think will be a major priority. And so I'm going to continue pushing on this. Uh, you know, I, I think that it should be something that could 
really catch the attention of the Senate, regardless of who the Senate majority leader is. But I, but I do think that it will, I do not see this moving forward before this upcoming election, okay. uh, just because there's so many more exigent style discussion points, you know, that are, that are top of mind. You are so good at these transitions because these exigent style <laughs> topics that are top of mind include the PPP. And I'm wondering, I've, I read a report by my former colleague, Mike Lillis, that there's a group of centrists who are considering signing a discharge petition on, I guess, Jamie Herrera Butler was going to put forward a, a bill that would release the rest of the PPP. Is it 130 million or something? Quickly. A discharge petition is a legislative tool usually used by the minority party to bypass House leadership and move a bill out of committee and to the House floor if 218 members sign on. It's highly unusual for members of the majority party, like Spamberger, to sign a discharge petition because the maneuver overrules the speaker and majority leader's ability to choose which bills get a vote on the floor. So I'm I'm considering it. Uh, Basically, I'm considering... I'm considering it. I, I I want to see additional PPP. I also want to see additional unemployment. I think doing one without the other is a, a half answer. But I, you know, a- anything where we can say, look, there is a need to move forward for relief for the American people. And there are a lot of folks who just want to argue over numbers. This amount of numbers, what we want to spend, this amount of number is what we want to spend. And I am hearing from constituents, nobody is saying, oh yeah, I really want to spend X trillions of dollars. People are saying, I need, like I am in need, I cannot pay my bills, will there be extended unemployment? Or my small business is trying to stay afloat and keep people employed and I I can't move forward, will there be more PPP, right? Like these are the things we're being responsive to. County administrators or board of supervisors saying we have planned for our rainy day and this is a global pandemic. We couldn't have planned for this. Right. Um, this is our Yeah. And, and so, um, you know, I, I think, the, so I mean, for me, all, option, all options are on the table if it helps get support uh, to the folks who need it. But okay. my, my hope and expectation is that um, we will focus on getting back to the negotiating table. And I'm ever the optimist, uh, getting back to the negotiating table, using the problem solvers framework if we want or not. Um, Where where is that, by the way? Because I know that Speaker Pelosi's kind of, I wouldn't say, maybe she's kind of poo-pooed it. I don't know everything she said. I've heard what Republicans say she said. I've heard what Democrats say she said. But, you know, she says a lot of things. So does a lot of people say a lot of things. So I I guess the question is, is that still a possibility? Is that is that framework a possibility? And I, I understood that members of the Problem Solvers Caucus were going to go around and talk to the other caucus, if you will, <laughs> progressives, CHC, all those. How has yeah. that how has that effort been going? And what, so, what is the status of that? You know, and I, I think that might be part of the element of being able to answer your question, um, which is interestingly. Uh, well, not uh, unsurprisingly, right? Like there's a lot happening on Capitol Hill. Um, we've we've spoken, we've talked about it with new Dems. Uh, there's been a lot of conversations with some of the other caucuses. You know, I think people have been surprised because everybody heard, oh yeah, the Democrats and Republicans agreed. There's 25 and 25. And so I've actually been present where some people say like, wait a second, there's extended unemployment and it's and, and the way that we, we structured it, it's um, 450 for eight weeks because according to everyone that we talked to, it would take eight weeks for the states to be able to transition right. to recognize percentage of. And then it is $600 a week right. um, 
up to 100% of previous wages. And okay. yeah, and so that's, you know, and that, that had been a sticking point for a lot of, uh, a lot of people. I mean, for, you know, frankly, it's something that I've heard from folks in my district. That yeah. $600 a week is really important when we as a country want to avoid a second housing crisis, right. when there's so much instability. Um, but recognizing that, you know, and we can talk about what the federal minimum wage is and whether or not that's, you know, there, there's a lot of issues with what people do or do not get paid and the fact that right. so many Americans live paycheck to paycheck. Um, but I think understandably there was some concern about the notion that people literally would be making more money on unemployment. And so, you know, recognizing let's do up to $600 or 100% of prior wages. And so, you know, what, what has become the sort of scuttlebutt on Capitol Hill is I think people were so surprised that there's a, a, a fair number of Republicans that were willing to support that. Initially, there was also a report out that our bill, or not that our bill, that our framework didn't include state and local. And so quite a few, that was initially reported. I don't know who, who thought that or how that got reported, but initially people said, oh, it doesn't include any state and local. It's, you know, dead on arrival. We won't, we won't even consider it. listen to it. Um, and so we've had to go back and say, no, it's actually a substantial state and local. It's what we're, it's what we, you know, and I'll say we kind of on the democratic side of the aisle, it's what we want. It provides the support to, uh, you know, localities and ensures that we're not losing our first responders and sanitation workers, et cetera, et cetera. So there were some mis incorrect reports initially that some people just sort of cast it aside because they thought that there was no extended unemployment or additional dollars and they didn't think that there was um, state and local. So now that people are finding that out, we're continuing to get a little bit more curiosity, um, at least, and I'm speaking on the Democratic side of the right. aisle, well, predominantly. Because the thing is, is that, you know, first of all, when was the last time you had a chat with Nancy Pelosi? I mean, do you go in and are, do you chat with her? Does she call her, hey, Abigail? She's, you know? she's a bit busy. I, you know, she's... No, I know she's been busy, but, but, but so I guess the Pelosi has struck me as the kind of person that you get your, you get your proposal together, and then you go find the votes and say, guess what? Can we talk about this? We had actually taken, um, uh, I will say, a slightly different tact, which is throughout the process uh -huh. when we were working through this, um, we kept her kind of informed of where we were with discussions. We kept Mark Meadows as kind of the representative of the White House chief of staff um, informed of where we were and, and basically said, you know, we're letting you know we're continuing with this. Hey, listen to what they're interested in. Listen to what they're interested in. Um, and uh, and I think those conversations were were pretty straightforward. Um, and so we we had that you know on the Democratic side of the aisle and the Republican side of the aisle, and and specifically with Speaker with Speaker Pelosi. And at, at this point in time, you know, I, I think with everything that's happened with the CR, which you know, thank goodness, I mean, it would be great if we would just if the Senate would have just done their appropriations work like the House did. But in the absence of that, um, I'm glad that we had a, a CR to ensure that we're not teetering on a government shutdown. Um, and so, you know, I, I think in the, having now gotten past that bit of brinksmanship, my, my hope is that we can return uh, very quickly, pivot back to COVID-19 related relief discussions. Because I mean, Nancy Pelosi said you guys aren't going home until something's passed, right? There's a group of us and, and there's a letter that a couple of our colleagues, bipartisan letter, a couple of our colleagues led that said, when we say we're staying here, that doesn't mean that we sort of play games and the house is in session, but right. it's not a voting day and nobody's actually here. Like we should be on Capitol Hill. Um, and so we've, uh, there's a letter that um, 
two Democrats and two Republicans led that said explicitly that we should stay on Capitol Hill in working sessions and working until we have a deal. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping that that can be um, something that compels us to move expeditiously, frankly, because the American people need it. American, like the American people cannot wait a day longer. Um, the description of your former career as a CIA operative, and it says, she traveled and lived abroad in collecting intelligence, managing assets, and overseeing high-profile programs in service to the United States. That kind of sounds like what you're doing now, except, except for the abroad stuff, collecting intelligence, managing assets, and overseeing. So, and, and this goes to, you know, being productive and getting things done. How has what you did in the CIA, which is so cool, and I'm surprised more Republicans aren't like, oh my God, you're so cool. Um, how does that help you do your job in Congress? I mean, are any of those skills that you picked up, you know, turning uh, agents, you know? <laughs> do you have any agents? Do you have any operatives in the, in, or, well, yeah. Do you have any operatives in the Republicans? <laughs> in the Freedom Caucus? Well, so like, I think, um, you know, what I think is pretty interesting is um, my whole time at CIA is you, you work on this principle of trying to find what your commonality is or creating commonality, right? Like, learning about someone else and finding that teeny tiny sliver and what motivates them right yeah and and it's um and and what motivates them what drives them what where could we work together and you know there were times when i you know met with particular people from a particular country where what motivated them was they wanted to make sure that our country didn't misunderstand what was happening in their country for the purpose of you know, avoiding calamity potentially, right? So like that is our commonality, which is like, it's helpful to you if we understand what you guys are doing back home. Right. And, and frankly, that's pretty, you know, mission driven on their side. But other than that, we had very little in common. But bringing that as the reason that we've come together, as the reason that we're kind of focused on working together, that's important. Um, just, it just seems like the perfect skill set. And I don't mean that in a nefarious way. I don't yeah. mean that in a, I mean that in just a reasonable, right. We want you to know what's going on. This is what's really happening behind the scenes. Um, you know, let's see if we can get together. But it's, it almost feels like today in, in the political climate that sometimes that's very difficult when you have both and on both sides yeah so people who are so wed to their ideology or their interests and then you have somebody like you who and and don bacon who've been yeah. recognized as being so bipartisan i mean how how do you sort of walk that that path well i think it's i think it's an intentionality right it's an intentionality with just trying to find common ground and recognizing if i agree if I can find common ground with this one person on one thing out of 10 things, like right. that, that's, that's, a, that's something that that's an anchor for something. And maybe right. it's not an, you know, maybe it's not an anchor for a bill, but at least it's an anchor for the next time, you know, they vote away. I don't understand. I can at least say, can, can you explain to me why you're so opposed to this, which right. there's learning in that. And I think so frequently on Capitol Hill, we just say, oh, well, they think that and we think this. And it's, a, and, and frankly, it happens within, you know, on each side, you know, sometimes when I have, when I voted, quote, against the party, there's this, you know, shock and horror when I have a really good reason and I'm happy to explain it to you. Um, and, you know, but there's, there's not that moment of understanding. And so there's real value, I think, in developing relationships where you can say, like, 
why on earth do you support this? I, I literally don't understand, you know, and, and where it can be jovial like that. I, um, I, there's a Republican who I work with sometimes and we have like nothing in common from a political standpoint. Um, but we've, you know, bonded over kids and chit chatting and, and, uh, and kind of friendly discussions. And the, the a thing we both care about, and of course we try to get at the solution totally different ways, the thing that we both care about are debt and deficit issues. And I care about debt and deficit issues from a national security perspective. He cares about debt and deficit issues be, just from a conservative mindset. Um, and so, we, that, and so we, we were having a conversation one day um, on the floor of the house and, and we have literally said like, hey, let's see what we could agree on. Right. And we've, we've done this exercise where we sit to, and you know, he'll name something I'm like, no, we are worlds apart, you know, and one, and so debt and deficit is it. And so we were just sort of like kind of being sassy or snarky about some issue related to spending. And, uh, you know, he just says, you know, I mean, it's like you're, you know, at home. And of course you can't really liken federal spending to what you do with your credit card at home, but for the sake of this conversation, but so we're sitting there and he says, you know, I mean, if you could just, charge up anything you ever wanted on the credit card like i'd have a souped up suburban and i go yeah and i'd have a i'd have a tesla and he looks at me and goes of course you would and i said of course you would but you know there's like there's an earnestness in the fact that like even in our sort of dream scenario of uh you know right if we were to sort of get you know loosey-goosey with our spending potentially even you know the the i guess the stereotypical sorts of vehicles that are you know, and, and there's a, like, there's a humility in it. There's a humanity in it. And, and literally like, you know, there, and there have been times where for some folks I have said, like, you know, I like, especially when, you know, someone puts out a statement that's particularly sort of biting in, in partisan in like a hackish way. Like I have had colleagues where I have said like, come on, like, this isn't, do we really need to do this? This, this isn't, this isn't you like, this isn't, don't, don't play this game. Cause it, it hurts people, right? Because, you know, right. at the end of the day, when you're at Thanksgiving and you've got, you know, family members who are arguing over policy or politics or whatever, like, they can't be hateful, right? Like, right. They, they just disagree. And I think particularly for us to be able to say, like, I disagree, um, and these are all the reasons why, that's a really valuable valuable tool. And you know what, if, if I can't defend my positions, like fiercely, when someone is voicing their opposition, then maybe my positions aren't as well held or as well founded as I'd like to believe. Well, there you go. Right. Um, <laughs> and, and I mean, to your question about my CIA background, like part of, you know, CIA is people would pick apart everything you did. And that's right. intentional, because if you're going to be doing something, you know, it's well, what happens if this happens and what happens if this and this and this and this. And you're constantly being challenged because it makes you stronger and better. Right. And so, um, you know, I, 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 I like the concept of being able to, you know, focus and disagree on policy issues because it might make better policy. We need to sign up some Republicans and Democrats for the Abigail Spanberger legislative, <laughs> <laughs> legislative victories, you know. <laughs> You know, strategy, how to, how to navigate the landmines of legislating in a politically partisan world. Well, I, I um, mean, for starters, it would be maybe <laughs> put down your phone. See, back to CIA world. We worked in skiffs. You couldn't have your phones with you. <laughs> put the phones away. Put them away. Do not, do not text your reporter friends. You don't need to tweet about this. Just, you know, 
everybody phones down. Um, so, so just, just like two final questions. Number one, are you going to vote for Speaker Pelosi again if the Democrats retake the House? I mean, if you guys win the House again? I'm going to look at all my options, but okay. um, so that's yeah. An open op that's an open option answer. Um, and then also on a local, completely local, local issue, th this Culpeper Sheriff, I hear that um, I've heard a lot of things about the Culpeper Sheriff. And I'm wondering if you have said anything about his recent postings on Facebook about BLM or um, I guess he also talked about the Boogaloo too, but I've, I've, I've heard that, or I've read reports that there may be a petition to recall him. Would you sign on to that? What's, what's your position on? So I, you know, I, I don't, I don't live in Culpeper. I don't think it's appropriate for me to dictate to my constituents in Culpeper okay. um, what actions they should or shouldn't take relative to their sheriff. Um, but certainly I firmly believe that any person in a position of public trust should work to ensure that he or she um, is holding themselves to the highest standard possible, um, that when they share information, when they, when they use their amplified voice, that they do it responsibly. Um, and I, and, and I, I feel very strongly about that because we, we, anyone in a position of public trust and, you know, almost the entirety of my public or my adult career has been in positions of public trust. I think we have um, just a real responsibility to be worthy of that public trust every day in our actions and words. Um, and, and so I, I would apply that standard to anyone. Okay, okay, well on, on, that, on that note, just one follow-up. There was some criticism after the Democratic Convention that Democrats weren't, they didn't mention you know, the violence that's gone on in the cities. Among, among the peaceful protesters, there has been violence in these cities. Do, yeah. do you think that the Democrats need to talk about that more often or, or to address it, this issue? Some Democrats don't want to defund the police, whether that's true or not, that the, like, the allegations and accusations are out there. I mean, I think, and I, I'll speak for myself, but I think that it, it really should go without saying that any person who writes laws would be in favor of law and order and against crime. And as a former law enforcement officer, like, I used to enforce the law. And so I think it's pretty straightforward that, I mean, crime is crime. Vandalism is vandalism. Just outside my district in, um, uh, in the fourth district, but, you know, culturally, the fourth and the seventh really um, overlap. Uh, we, we have had vandalism. We've had buses get burned from Virginia Commonwealth University, which is you know, a public institution, $100,000 worth of damage that they reported after one weekend. You know, that's taxpayer dollars. That's parents and students and hard-earned money that's going to repair that. Like, that's just wrong. Um, right. and, and in the spirit of John Lewis, who, of course, um, you know, was an example to, for so many of us, for generations of Americans, a, a nonviolent path towards pursuing better social change is, is the path that, that he preached, is the path that led to the civil rights movement. Uh, and I think in this time of uh, real, incredibly deep conversations about issues of equity and racial justice, um, the rallies and the advocacy, and in my district, it is literally like the sheriff's department handing out water to the people walking in marches. It's police officers side by side with community members. It's people of all ages and backgrounds and races saying, yes, like we should be on this ever present path towards progress. Right. Um, but, you know, I mean, I, I, but I think it, it, 
it should go out without saying that crime is crime and we all denounce crime. But I do think that there is a space for, you know, for us to really clearly define that people who are advocating peacefully, you know, and, and peaceable assembly as it lay, as laid out in the First Amendment of the Constitution, like that is them using their voice as Americans, people um, to better our society for all of us. And that's totally separate from breaking glass and burning things and doing anything else that, that's violent or disruptive. Because it's, it's not only disruptive to the social fabric and, uh, and the society, but it's also disruptive to the cause that so many other people are peacefully, um, you know, using their voice to advocate for families and young children and, you know, babies in backpacks. And so I, I think that, you know, I, I, I think the more that we can be clear on that, you know, and, and I do not support the notion of defunding the police because, in fact, particularly during COVID-19, and I've heard this readily from uh, from the law enforcement agencies in our district, uh, depart, uh, police departments and sheriff's department, I mean, overdose rates are up, domestic disturbance are up, um, people who, calls for people who are in a time of crisis, uh, those are up, and so we we are in a place where so much is being thrust upon our law enforcement officers um, that we have to ensure they have the resources that they need both in their department uh, for their own officers, but then even outside of the department in the community in substance use disorder treatment, right? Wow. So that people can get either preventative interventions or treatment that doesn't put them on a path into the criminal justice system when yeah. in fact they might need mental health services. I know um, a lot of that going on. Yeah. I mean, it's it just especially, it's sort of like a secondary issue um, related to COVID, you know, something yeah. that, I mean, the doctors were talking about that today, Redfield, and just saying, you know, our rates of suicide and suicidal ideation, they're up and, you know, it's a medical issue and, and, but you need people to go in there and help them out sometimes. Yeah. And, and if you don't have those people. Yeah. And, and who do you call? You call. I mean, we call the police, that's, that's what we do as a society. And right. so, I mean, and recognizing the stressors that are on them, uh, you know, I, I think is an in incredibly Im important thing. And again, to my earlier point, you know, people in a position of public trust should be held to the highest standard. Right. But we also need to ensure that they have the resources and the foundation to be able to do their job well. Um, and if we're asking them to do somebody else's job, that we give them the training so they actually can do that as, as well. At this point in the conversation, we continued talking and comparing notes about running for student body president as younger people and how Spanberger's loss in high school became an inside joke with a constituent. I ran for, I ran for class president in the ninth grade. And, um, and it's funny because the, the guy who, who won, who's a constituent and a friend, um, he, when I launched the campaign, like we've, we've teased each other or maybe more correctly, he's teased me about how, you know, he hopes that he's the only one who's ever like beaten me. Um, and, uh, yeah. So you have a very interesting district and you yeah. came in after, I mean, oh my gosh, I can't believe Tom Blyley was representing your district, Eric Cantor and Dave Bratt, and now Abigail Spanberger. It's a Democrat in this district that has sort of more libertarian leadings, but it's just, it, it's very interesting to see how you've done all this. And again, I just look at, I'm looking at it right now, like all the responses to emails and letters, like the data of showing what you've done for your, your constituents. That's really impressive. And I think more well, people would be interested in Congress if they knew what members of Congress actually do. Well, and I think this is the benefit of working 
really truly like having to work for every single vote it, it's a it's a mindset about how you work and how you engage and and i think it's a it's a mindset of of service and i think that we would all be better served uh, as a country and certainly as a congress if we had more seats and, and some of my colleagues might not like this if we all had more seats that were a little bit more competitive because you've got some seats that are safe blue seats safe red seats and then you got this this like middle um, where you know the the real value is that for every we talked a lot about how I talk to different members across the ideological spectrum but the really interesting thing is for every member across the ideological spectrum I have a constituent who's right there with them right and so I have I have a level of accountability to people who are just you know across that whole spectrum that fall in all of those places and so you know, there's an interesting commonality because I might disagree with a colleague, but yet I'm going to hear the same thing at a town hall. So it's really helpful to me to say, well, why does, you know, why does my colleague disagree with me? Or why does this constituent disagree with me? Because maybe now I know how to talk to my colleague about it and vice versa. Right, exactly. And there's no. a real good learning in that, I there think. Is. Well, maybe more CIA um, operatives should run for Congress. <laughs> well, it's going to just be down to me because Will Hurd's leaving. So, Yeah. <laughs> Oh, no. Well, anyway, thank you, thank you, thank you again. I thank you, Molly. You. I appreciate it. It was good talking to you. Good talking to you, too. All <laughs> right, bye. Bye. That was Abigail Spanberger of Virginia's 7th District. An extension of remarks. Since we recorded the interview, the House passed a $2.2 trillion COVID relief package that House Democrats dubbed Heroes Act 2.0. Spanberger and 17 other Democrats voted against the measure, calling it partisan gamesmanship. Still, shortly before recessing for October, the White House and Speaker Pelosi continued working on a bipartisan stimulus package, and if a deal is struck before Election Day, Leader Hoyer can recall members to D.C. for a vote. He said that they will get 24 hours notice. Thank you so much for listening to the show this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can write to me at article1podcast at gmail.com. My Twitter handle is at Molly Hooper. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or colleague and leave a rating and a review. Special thanks to Connor Joseph for setting up the interview. And on the next episode, GOP rep Dave Schweikert, who's locked in a tough re-election fight in his Arizona district. We discuss covid Arizona issues, the tenor of the current debate, and the reason he is an optimist, noting that at 58 years old, with a daughter of five, he has to be an optimist. Until then, I reserve the right to revise and extend my remarks. <laughs>